But specifically to be an intimacy specialist, I believe that you should not offer a certification because certifications are a piece of paper that say, I approve you. It does not give that person who is getting the certification any ownership over the way they learn because they are forced to learn in a certain way to jump through hoops. And that, my friends, is one of the benchmarks of supremacy. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lord Tell. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. Good evening, everybody. My name is Eric Ostro. Before we start this evening, I want to introduce my colleague, Viet Vo. Hello, Viet, who's going to talk about how the Lucille Lortel Theater is uplifting AAPI companies and their programs through its social media platform for AAPI Heritage Month. So welcome, my friend Viet. Welcome. Thank Hi, you for coming Eric. back. How are you? Good. I want to hear what you have to say, though. Yes, as Eric has mentioned, my name is Viet Vo from the Lucille Lortel Theater, and May is AAPI Heritage Month, and all month long we'll be uplifting AAPI companies and their programs through our social media platforms. So you can follow us on Instagram at Lortel Theater, on Facebook and on Twitter as well for more information. I also want to invite you, as every Friday this month, I'll be interviewing members from our AAPI community on our IG account at Lortel Theater. It's IG Live with, and this week's special guest is JG Makabugai. Along with that, other events include Mai Theater's presentation of the puppet play Vancouver, created with the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, that tells the story of an Asian American family dealing with anti Asian aggression, and a reading of Once Upon a Korean Time by Daniel K. Isaacs. Tickets and more information can be found at ma-yi-theater.org. On May 30th, with Pan-Asian Rep, we are honoring Corky Lee Memorial Zoom Tribute. Continuing on extension-wise, as May 17th to the 30th is The Emperor's Nightingale with a re-envisioned virtual with interactive educational calligraphy. Along with that, we also have Natco presenting a one-night-only reading on May 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time of Our Town. More tickets and information can be found at natco.org. And from there on, that's back to you, Eric. Well, I just want to say what a great interview you did with one of my favorite artists, Francis Jew, last week. It was wonderful. You can still watch that interview on Instagram. So thank you for it. It was wonderful. It was thank great. You, Eric. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Well, have a great night. You too. Okay, let's get to our show this evening. I'm going to bring up my dear friend and co-host for the evening, Miss Joy D. Michelle. Joy, good <laughs> evening, my love. Hi, darling. How are you? How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm excited for our guest today. Me too. You look magnificent, as always. So Anne James has an extensive career in theater education, stage direction, and conflict resolution in corporate and artistic environments. Anne has had the opportunity to direct on several regional stages, including the Alley, Steppenwolf, Dallas Theater Center, and a lot of others. The big thing, Anne is devoted to making both stage and screen safer places for Black, Indigenous, people of color to practice their craft. Her company, Intimacy Coordinators of Color, has solid partnership with Actors Equity, Arts Equity, Theater Communications Group, Time's Up, ART New York. And we are so excited to welcome, um, I call her my queen. And um, so let's just bring up um, our guest, Miss Anne James. Welcome. <laughs> Hello. Hello, my darling. How are you? You know, I couldn't be better. Yeah, well, you had a little bit of a internet snafu. You're in Texas, right? I am in Texas, and I am on my favorite place on the earth here in Brenham, Texas, on 110 acres of farmland in a house that was built in the 1870s with my very, very 
best friend and the illustrious actress, Annalie Jeffries. This is a bit of R&R for me out of the hustle and bustle of Los Angeles, a precursor to my trip to New York. So a little bit of a quiet before things get a little crazy. Before the storm. Well, we're welcome to have you. Actually, Joy was the one that introduced me to you and your work. And why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? I mean, I know as a director, producer, you've been all around the world, but the work that you've been doing lately that's been highlighted and being put a light on is intimacy coordinator, choreographer. So we'd love to talk about that and why it's so important now to shine a light on this. Yeah, sure. I am an intimacy choreographer. That is the umbrella term. For intimacy director, which does their work on stage, and an intimacy coordinator who does their work in television and film. So we're all intimacy coordinators. And what that means is that we move into spaces in the entertainment industry to create safe and brave spaces for actors to stay within their consent and boundaries while still giving the director what they want to create artistically with these actor So it could be uh, sexual choreography around either sexual violence or intimate scenes of love. It could mean racial intimacy, meaning one race pitted against another in a kind of a cultural standoff. We come in and create dialogue for that and create choreography for that. So I can give you the proper equity approved definition of an intimacy choreographer. Okay. So this is a definition that was created with myself and Bliss Griffin of Actors Equity a few months ago. An intimacy choreographer is responsible for the consensual crafting and staging of stories of sex, race, disability, religion, or age with appropriate cultural context and competency. They consult on scenes with loaded, heightened, or charged content that draws on the actor's identity. So as you can see, we just completely encompassed all of the protected classes of the EEOC. And that was really, really important for Actors' Equity to include. That's fantastic, because I think for a while there, race was not included, and it's amazing to hear you guys be able to talk about it and really get it to be something that's truly inclusive, and it's not just a space that is dominated by one particular group, by the minority group, as the one that is dominating what's happening for the majority. So that's... I love that. I love that you said that, and actually... When I got into this industry a year and a half ago, two years ago almost now, there were very few people of color involved in this training. It was mainly dominated by white women, cis, het, white women. And I just felt that there were not enough people that looked like me in the industry, especially in the leadership of industry. And because of that, and because I knew that we had all of these stories of racial conflict, Black Lives Matter, social unrest, I knew these stories were coming down the pike. And I knew that actors of color, specifically black actors, were going to need someone who looked like them to choreograph those intimacy moments with racial violence. I started my company. So there you are. That's fantastic. So, Anne, I'm interested, how did this come to your life? Besides, you saw kind of something that was missing within the industry, but how did this come to you? I had previously lived in Shanghai for six and a half years. I had a production company there called Dreamweaver Productions, and I had done... I think over the past six and a half years, I had done over 50 productions. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Willy Walk in the Chocolate Factory. As a director. All of these productions. As a director, producer. As a director. And it was time for me to come back because my parents are getting older. My dad just turned 80. And I thought, I have been gone for a decade and I need to come back. And so I knew when I was coming back that I would need something to reinvigorate me about the American theater after being away for so long. And I looked into intimacy direction as a way to uplift 
what I had been doing over the past 30 years with my career in the system that I created called the Circles of Intimacy. And here it was. Now it was a thing in the States. And so that attracted me to taking some classes and some courses, which were very expensive and had to jump on a plane for a couple of the trainings after I moved out here to L.A. And I just felt that it was cost prohibitive, access prohibitive, not as globally minded. As I said before, most of the women doing the training were white women in their 30s. And I just was looking for somebody who looked like me to take us forward. And that is what created in me kind of that fire to say, hmm, I've got over 30 years of producing, directing, facilitating conflict resolution, the circles of intimacy background. So why don't I just go for it? And I put a post up on a few Facebook groups one day and overnight I woke up and I found 400 likes. I found messages of basically distress saying, I want in on this training, but I don't want to be trained by this type of person. I want to be trained by a person who looks more like me. And that was basically the beginning, Eric and Joy. That was the beginning of Intimacy Coordinators of Color. You know, they say as an artist, your art and your craft will cost you. You know, we've all heard that. However, it doesn't have to cost you your dignity and your self-respect. So with Intimacy Coordinating and intimacy advocacy and just people who are in that professional space as intimacy professional. What do you say to those people who are producers, who are casting people, who are on that side, who are writers, who need to know that there needs to be space for this when creating their art so that artists can still stay mentally intact and spiritually and emotionally intact as well? Can you speak to that, to the producers and casting people, all those people on the other side? That is a big question. That's going to take us to the end of the show. Okay, let's talk about producers first. Look, if there are producers out there, I can guarantee you that knowing that your actors are comfortable and safe and feel protected and enthusiastic is going to do you a lot of service when it comes to people complaining about unfair situations, Scott Rudin, having to deal with the sometimes aggressive scripts that are out there that call for actors to use their bodies in ways that require consent and boundaries. If I wanted to talk to writers, I would say, if you want actors to do the things that you write, please, A, for intimacy directors, please be specific about those stage directions and what you see in your mind so we can deliver those things to you. And also realize that people actually have muscle, skin, and bone, and what you might see and envision as something that you can see in your mind, please be respectful and understand that people are going to try to stick to the text and stick to the stage directions as much as possible. So please be specific. Being specific in the writing, as far as casting directors, you know, I just had a really interesting experience. Victor Vasquez, who is one of the premier casting directors now, he's up and coming and established. He's at Yale. He's all over the place. And He just served as casting director for a show that I'm going to be working on. We can talk about that later. But the most interesting thing about this casting process, and I'm so proud of the producers for this, and I'm so proud of the director releasing some of that ego to make room for the actors to have someone like me to talk to before the final casting. The content of this show is alarming. And rightly so. And so before the final offers were made, the casting director, the producers, and the directors thought it would be a good idea to have me talk to those final selections first before making the offer just to talk about the content and get their boundary level, get their consent level. You know, boundaries can always change. 
but I felt that it was quite remarkable. And I think it's the first time that such a deep conversation happened about the content before casting that there has been in the history of theater. So that was really, really exciting to become a part of that final decision. Yeah, I'll bet. So what's the conversations you as intimacy choreographer kind of got in there and talked to the people that were called back about where their boundaries were, how they felt about the play, comfortability level, that kind of stuff. Am I right as to what the conversations, yeah? You're exactly right, Eric. That's exactly what happens. Part of our job as intimacy choreographers is to speak separately to the actors in a different format than with the director in the room. Because, of course, we're there to strike a balance in the power dynamic Mm -hmm. in that relationship. Sometimes actors exhibit what we call fawning response. It is a traumatic response built on being super okay with everything. I know I talked with Karen Olivo about this on a conversation that we had previously. And that fawning is just saying yes to everything that is required because Mm -hmm. you want to be a people pleaser. You want to get the role. And what an intimacy director does or an intimacy choreographer, we kind of wedge in and really try to speak to how the actor is really feeling because they don't have to say yes to us at all. As a matter of fact, I told the casting team of this particular show that I'm working on, if I interviewed an actor and they said, oh, yes, 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 it doesn't matter. I could do anything. I recommend to the casting directors to not cast that person. Wow. Because they're not in touch with their consent and boundaries. And this particular show is not the place to learn about your consent and boundaries. Seriously, Mm -hmm. there is some very charged material. I was quite impressed with the final actors. And we all had really good conversations about where they were with their boundary and consent practice. So now the show is cast. It's interesting that you bring that up because I was talking with an actor, director, friend of mine who is known. And I was telling that I was going through this process of learning how to become an intimacy director. And as a director themselves had issue with it because as a director, they're saying, well, I don't understand why we're being forced to bring somebody else into a space and direct something that I chose to direct. So what is that about? I, after explaining to them and I used fawning as an example to explain because it was a female director I was talking to and that's what helped her to get it. Not fight, not flight, not any freeze, none of that. It was the fawning because she's a woman of a certain age that lived during that time where you didn't use your voice and you didn't speak up and you didn't say things that could possibly put you in a box where people may not want to cast you because you're deemed as difficult. What do you say to directors to get them to understand that intimacy directors, choreographers are there for your protection? They're not there to usurp something from you. They're there to help to make your vision and to protect you. Can you talk about how that is so? Yes, that is a brilliant way. And you better use that traumatic response terminology you learned. Yes. (laughs) Here's the thing. You're going to get a play no matter what. You're going to get a play either through force and through coercion and through guilt and through force, or you can get it through staying within the consent and boundaries of the actor. One way leads to actors feeling less than, feeling controlled, feeling out of control, which causes things like sexual addiction, addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, pills, disruption and dis-ease within the actor. And it will either eat that actor up or that actor will leave the business. If you work with an intimacy director in these cases, you are entering a process that is holistic in design using the very, very best that the actor has to offer and give and staying within their consent and boundary practice, you're going to get an even better show. And most importantly, 
that actor is going to leave your production enthusiastic and joyful about their next project. Mm -hmm. So which would you prefer? This is a question I ask directors. I'm a director too. I'm not so sure that I would be so happy about someone coming in and getting to choreograph the juiciest bits of the play that I selected. But here's the thing. Actors are different now. We've been through a pandemic now. The situation and the content are pushing boundaries and they're pushing the envelope of theater. I would much rather have someone at my side that I could say, hey, these actors don't really want to be touched in this way today or what should I do? I would much rather be there at the director's side, not taking up space that the director occupies, but adding additional space for the actors to thrive. So, Anne, when you're in a room with the director and the cast and the actors, I'm very interested about your process. I guess it would really depend on the cast and the director, but is it a lot of notes after? Is it helping with the choreography of perhaps a sex scene or a fight scene? And is it a collaboration between you and the director on the fight scene and the sex scene or talking about a subject that's very uncomfortable? How is it that you work in the room? I'm interested how an intimacy choreographer works the room. That's a great question. Usually when we're brought into a project, it can happen one of two ways. One way is a director or producing company is thinking about doing a script. They realize that there is some charge material in that script. And so their intelligence leads them to reaching out to an intimacy director to look over that script and kind of break it down intimacy-wise to see where they feel they can help that team create a beautiful show. So sometimes it starts right at the beginning of the process. Mm -hmm. From the beginning, we are at table. We talk to the actors. This time, I talk to the actors before they were even cast, which is really great. And we go in in those particular scenes. Some people think that intimacy director is there every day. This is not the case. Intimacy director comes in to help facilitate the bringing to life of the intimate scenes in a production. Other than that, we're out of your way. We just come in, lock in that consent and boundary practice. We do what's called a boundary check-in practice where the actors communicate with one another about how they're feeling that day. Mm -hmm. And then we move on through and help to choreograph that scene. Sometimes we are actually hands-on directing where this leg goes now, scoot your bottom this way because we don't want the audience to see too much and bring your arm, you know, we do that. Other times we let the director take the lead and lean and whisper to us. So we create an opportunity for the art to happen on the side of the director, but always focused on the actors. Yeah, absolutely. Have you gotten into a director maybe rejected something that you've said? I mean, I can imagine in my head, but my head always goes there about there definitely could be some friction or some kind of director was like, no, don't touch that or don't do that. I mean, how do you handle that? I haven't had that experience. Luckily, knock wood. I haven't had that experience. What I have come up against is because intimacy, direction, choreography, coordination is so new, and I'm not going to throw white guys under the bus. Thank you. But it always happens the same to be a white guy in power (laughs) who sees this coming. Because I didn't dress special for this. Those of you who've seen me before know that this is kind of my jam and seem to be threatened for whatever reason by all of this. So I get little side comments, little snide remarks, little, but you know, a part of our training as intimacy consultants, and Joy can speak to this, is that I really do believe that as intimacy professionals, we raise the emotional intelligence in the room. So shit like that doesn't bother me. I just let it breathe. I let them breathe. 
and I do what I can for the actors. Because remember, intimacy directors are not hired by the director. They're hired by the producers. So whether a director wants me in the room or not, it's kind of my job to be there. And in some cases, because of the director. So there's all kinds of emotional navigation that has to sometimes take place in order to give the actors a safe place to be. The navigation and the tools that you have to have to be able to hold that space in that container. Can you talk about the idea of qualification over certification? Because oh, 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 oh. (laughs) I know that there are a lot of programs out there that certify and they cost a tremendous amount of money. And it actually is a gatekeeping way of keeping the people who hold that position to look a certain way. Does certification mean that you're qualified? And can you be qualified without certification? You're just going to make me lay it out. Come on with yes, it. Okay. Lay it. Okay. So let me adjust my turban for a second. <laughs> <laughs> So I qualify people in this industry through my training process for free because I feel that the more people come to this industry with an understanding that it is up to them to get the knowledge, to be there for the meetings, to be there for the trainings without any kind of financial obligation whatsoever brings you to a more qualified intimacy coordinator. And that's just how I roll. There are other companies and organizations in this field that charge over $10,000 for similar training. And I would say I have a better training process because it's organic to the individual. I do not believe in big group mass classes for training specifically, unless it's something that I can offer everyone. You know, it's a universal teaching like I did with the intimacy captain training. Come one, come all. Everyone needs that training. But specifically to be an intimacy specialist, I believe that you should not offer a certification because certifications are a piece of paper that say, I approve you. It does not give that person who is getting the certification any ownership over the way they learn because they are forced to learn in a certain way to jump through hoops. And that, my friends, is one of the benchmarks of supremacy. Having a certification and having to be certified by people who are not certified is a problem. Who is certifying the certifiers? If you decide all of a sudden that you have knowledge and you are going to require a certification in order to practice what you teach, who certified you? This is the question. And I'd like you to repeat what you said about that that creates supremacy. Anytime you have a system where in order to receive a validation, you get a piece of paper that is built on keeping some people out mm-hmm. and allowing the certain type of person in mm-hmm. someone who can afford your training, someone who can fly across the country for your training, mm-hmm. someone who is word heavy reading. I'm moving into what about people who have a learning disability about reading? What if they need all of their lessons to be auditory? Mm -hmm. Are you creating accessibility to your learning by having everyone have to read a 35-page certification program Mm -hmm. document? It is a gatekeeping tactic, in my opinion. And all of that paperwork and all of that, having a piece of paper at the end and all of that was built on the notion of fear built on the notion that if we don't create a certification, all these predators are going to come into our industry and they're going to start destroying people's minds and destroying people's art and all of this, which 
it is a fallacy. It is a made up fear. It is a way to gatekeep by hiding under the fact that they don't want people to be harmed. I just don't stand by that. It doesn't paper out. It does not parse out. There is no proof that without a certification, you are going to go out and harm people. And certainly with our certification program, There are things that we require you to have mental health and first aid training, bystander training, sexual harassment training, all of these things that we brought to the table, which are now being adopted by the other companies that help to vet people into this company. So now having a piece of paper, the supremacist block gatekeeping. Come on. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. It kind of creates like a secret club that you're blocking some people to get out without that piece of paper. And it's fascinating to me that you're not charging anything for it, but what are you requiring the people that take this with you, your certification? What are you requiring? I think it's interesting for people to know. I mean, Joy, for one, is in the midst of doing her certification. What do you require in terms of a sexual harassment certification, stuff like that. I'm very interested. I think our audience would be interested in what's required before you get out there and you're on your own with a show. Yeah, that's a great thing to talk about. At Intimacy Coordinators of Color, we have what I call prerequisite training. So before you even really begin to get the ins and outs of what intimacy coordination is and intimacy specialization is, which we can talk about in a minute, you must take a training and get a certificate in mental health and first aid training that is valid for three years and you can get it in every state. It's a mental health and first aid certificate. Then you must get anti-harassment training or bystander intervention training, sexual harassment training, training in racial bias which is really a racial and cultural bias, which incidentally is still not a requirement for SAG-AFTRA protocols and procedures for intimacy coordinators. In other words, you could be an intimacy coordinator and have no training in racial bias or cultural Mm -hmm. bias, which I just don't understand. (laughs) I know, I know. Can you go back to that second one after the sexual one you said there was another one? Oh, bystander intervention. Bystander, yeah. What is that? Yeah, the bystander intervention training is something that's quite remarkable. And I suggest everyone after this podcast broadcast to go to a website, hollaback.com. And I know the wonderful wizards behind the scenes can maybe throw that in the chat. Spell it for me. H-O-L-L-A-B-A-C-K dot com. They are the premier bystander intervention training company in the United States. And what they do is they take different scenarios that you might be in where someone is being verbally abused, someone is being diminished, someone is being treated unfairly, and they give you steps as a person in the room to diffuse, redirect, to deflect, to distract Mm. that person from causing harm. And there's safe ways to do it. And they give you a plethora of suggestions on how you can do that. But it's hollaback.com. Michelle and Jennifer, they're absolutely wonderful. And they've just actually added an AAPI segment on how to be a bystander and intervene in a situation where an Asian person is being accosted verbally or being mistreated, which I think is so important right now. So check out Hollaback. But that's one of our requirements is that all of our candidates in our cohort must go through that type of training. It's very empowering in the way of your own personal mental health. Because if anybody takes that kind of training, typically when you see something traumatic happen, and you do nothing, you take that home with you and you, it lives with you. You're like, oh my goodness, I should have said something. I should have done something. You feel a little traumatized yourself. Well, if you're empowered and you know how to step in as a bystander for someone else, the trauma ends right there. You don't take it along with you. So I encourage everybody to, they have a whole list of different kinds of trainings that you can do. And for free. (laughs) It's free. 
So we've got bystander intervention training, mental health and first aid training, sexual harassment training, anti-harassment training. I think that's it. I think that's all the training. Oh, yeah. And for my people in L.A., because we're working on film sets, as a matter of fact, I have to cut my vacation early because I just got hired to go on set for this great new television show. That's all I can say. But I do have a COVID-19 officer certificate, and it just helps to be that set of eyes on set, because I'll explain it this way. If you're in L.A. and you're hired as an intimacy coordinator, you are considered to be in what is called the A zone, or sometimes call it the red zone, which means you are with the unmasked actors in that situation. But guess what? COVID officers are oftentimes not allowed in the red zone. So we serve as that extra layer of Mm. protection for the actors. If there's a grip there with this mask down, or if somebody has their mask down within that six feet range, or I like to say 10 feet away from an unmasked actor. And these oftentimes, not that it matters, but they're A-list actors. They're working hard. They're doing their thing and they're trying to do their job safely. So it's always good to say, hey, I'm an IC, but I also have my COVID-19 compliance certification. And they're like, you're hired. It's just a great thing. It's a little extra thing to put on it. Yeah. That, so that those are all a little extra sauce. Yeah. Those are all the prerequisites. Yeah. And then once those are done, then that's when you get into a whole list of the meat of the training about how right. to become an intimacy coordinator. But I wanted to jump into something very quickly about education, because mm-hmm. I think that if universities, institutions that are putting up people who are theater professionals, acting professionals, really take this seriously and begin to incorporate it into their training, then we actually create a space where a whole new generation of people come out who are more conscious and more aware and can really do the work that needs to be done. Because I know that working in film and television, you've got people who are in your hair. You've got people who are putting a mic down your shirt. You've got people who are doing your wardrobe and they're like intimate with your body. You've got all this stuff going on and people aren't always thinking about how does that make you feel as an actor? They just treat you like a piece of meat to say, oh, go get your mic go get your wardrobe. What is being done or do you know what's being done to make this a part of the training that happens in BFA and MFA programs? I'm in an MFA program myself. I am in an MFA at Loyola Marymount University getting my master's in performance pedagogy with an emphasis in Afrocentric intimacy pedagogy. And What I'm learning there is that not only is it important to have intimacy coordinators and intimacy directors learn and teach and give offerings in an Afrocentric way, but it's also important for costumers to know about what intimacy direction is. It's also important for, okay, I'm going to blow your minds for a second, but box office people to know about intimacy because you may be a person in their 70s. You may not want someone's hand on your back helping you down the stairs. And so the question that that usher might have to you first is, is it okay if I place my hand on your back to guide you down the stairs? So that even your audience and even your patrons to your theater are feeling embraced in the envelope of consent and boundary work. And that's what I'm working toward, is moving into university systems and trying to hit every aspect of theater with an understanding of consent and boundaries. So I'm glad you brought that up. Is this a program that you created yourself with Leola? I mean, I've never, is this something new? Well, performance pedagogy is a brand new master's. And there, I think, four or five different programs around the nation that actually offer a master's in performance pedagogy. And what I mean by performance pedagogy is is the study of teaching performance. So we are getting our master's in teaching performance to university students in community theater environments, professional theater environments, 
we are learning how to teach theater in a myriad of environments. My specialization, Afrocentric intimacy pedagogy, is something I created. Wow. Fascinating. Such a progressive school that they've let you pave the way to do this. Incredible. I mean, my professors are incredible. They are out in the field doing work. Mm -hmm. They're not behind these hallowed ivy halls. They are out there in the field writing papers, going to conferences themselves. So they set a very good and high example of what we are supposed to do pastorally, pedagogically, professionally. I couldn't have asked for a better group of professors. And the dean of my school is amazing. And also the head of the master's program, Kevin Wetmore, is incredible. That man has so many plays in his office. I don't even know how he gets to them all. But just incredibly intelligent people who are tasked with teaching our cohort. And I feel very blessed to be there. Go Lions! You know, I've been reading a lot about intimacy coordinators this week, and I'm very fascinated about what you do now. And I was reading an article about Audrey McDonald working on Frankie and Johnny and how much her intimacy coordinator, because she spends a lot of the play almost all naked, same with Michael Shannon. She said she could not have gotten through it without the intimacy coordinator. What is your process in when you're creating an intimate scene like that for actors? Do you have a process of going in, whether it's a sexual scene or a very violent scene, or is everybody out of the room? I mean, do you have a a certain process that you go through? Yes, there is a very detailed process that we go through from table, actually. So the first thing that I have to say overarching about this process is that we move at the speed of trust. Mm. So we move at the speed of trust. The theatrical complex has been built on a business complex. It is show business with business being capitalized. So the idea of this time is money, let's go, 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 has often brushed and washed actors under the bridge. When the intimacy director comes into a process and say there's a lot of nudity, okay, we would never ask those actors to be nude before tech rehearsal. So we may start in their street clothes and, okay, then maybe a week out of tech, We start removing layers. And the costuming, if it's brief nudity, it all depends. But there are things like modesty garments, things that cover the outward and internal genitalia, depending on how you identify and what you have. So there are modesty garments that can hide those areas and still you appear to be nude. Sometimes you don't have the grace of having those garments and the actor is nude. But the only way those rehearsals would be happening with nudity involved is on a closed set or a closed rehearsal room. That means me, the actors, the director, the stage manager, that's it. So the first time those clothes come off, which is a very sacred moment in my imagining, as an Afrocentrist, the body is sacred. And when that happens, there has to be attention. Attention must be paid to what these actors are about to go through eight shows a week. And so that very, very first time nudity happens, if there is a cast of 20, only the people who are going to be nude will be in that rehearsal. As we move into tech, and of course, other actors are involved, other crew members are involved, we have different ways of masking that nudity until the lighting designer needs to see skin. Because oftentimes it's the lighting designer that needs to see the bounce of light, that needs to see shadow of the skin, that needs to see all those things. And then immediately after that scene is over, the actor should be handed a robe that is in the process of the agreement with the actors and what we call a nudity rider. So there's a robe that happens right after the tech of that scene is over. And also during performance, there is a robe to get that person to the dressing room. So we're trying to diminish the exposure to what happens in the play. 
so that you don't have a bunch of naked people walking around backstage. So yeah, there's a process. With the country opening very soon and us getting back to theater, I'm sure there are people that are listening right now who are thinking, this is important. I would love to be a part of this. I'd love to be a part of this wonderful transformation that's happening. However, I don't want to be an intimacy coordinator or a director or professional. I don't want to go through that training, but I do want to be a part of helping. I know that you have intimacy captain certificate that you offer for people in the theater who might want to have that kind of knowledge. Can you talk about that a bit? I would love to talk about the intimacy captain training, just to give it a little bit of context and make it something Mm -hmm. that is a little bit easier to understand. The intimacy captain serves a purpose much like a fight captain or a dance captain, meaning a dance choreographer will come in, choreograph the piece, set the piece on the actors, and then go to their next gig. Same with a fight director. They come, they choreograph the fight, and then they go. But before they go, they appoint someone to be the fight director. Same thing with the dance captain. The choreographer entrusts someone in the cast to serve as the dance captain. This is the same thing. While an intimacy professional is working with the actors on the intimate scenes, the intimacy captain is right there with them, taking notes on notation, taking notes on the boundary check-in practice, taking notes on the intimacy call and what that calls for, so that when that intimacy professional moves on to another gig, someone is there to hold that IP down, there to hold that intellectual property of that intimacy professional down, Mm -hmm. just in the same way as a dance captain or a fight captain would. And it also creates a safe and brave space for the actors to run that intimacy before each rehearsal or run or before each performance, just like a fight call or a dance call might be before a performance. And the stage manager doesn't have to be there to monitor it. They can go off and do the stage managerly things. You know, the reason why I created this intimacy captain gig, this training, if you will, is because I love stage managers. And I know and believe that when we get back open again, that stage managers are going to have a whole heap of new procedures that they will have to unpack and deal with pertaining to COVID. And so in order to help them do their job with more grace, I thought that an intimacy captain might be something to help alleviate and share the load with stage managers as we open back up again. So yeah, I've done two trainings so far. It is a certificate that you can get after, not a certification, but a certificate that you can get after a three-hour training. It does not make you an intimacy professional. It makes you an actor who can serve as an intimacy Mm -hmm. captain on any show where you're not involved in the intimacy. And the time goes by so quickly, and we are in the middle of the biggest fight in our country is ever experiencing. And we've had an awful year with the deaths of so many black men and women and what's going on in the theater. And and you and I interviewed Karen and Eden a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was so enlightening and what you guys talked about and how we kind of can take the process of dismantling and then building back up and what we need to do. I'm glad that we joined. I had the opportunity to interview just you because I would love to get your point of view about where we need to go as theater to get to a place where everybody can be okay. I'll say this about that. It doesn't cost a nickel to be kind. And what I mean by that is I started this industry. Don't make me cry. Okay, hold on. Let me get my shit together. I like a good cry. I started in this industry as an actor, and I love actors. And when I became an actor-director, I made a promise to myself that I would always direct as though I was in the show and how I would be treated because I went through some brutal directors. As a matter of fact, I learned how to direct by not doing the things that, (laughs) uh Oh, we lost our electricity. (gasps) Isn't that something? 
Yeah, it's a great way to finish. See, and you see what happens when you speak truth to power. Can you see me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I learned how to direct by watching directors direct very poorly and treat people very poorly. And what I can say about us as we open back up together is that these stories are going to be coming at us from a whole different perspective. They're going to be stories of freedom. They're going to be stories of injustice. They're going to be stories that involve the global community like we've never seen before. And unless we can get to the fact that time should be kind to the actor, we won't learn what we need to do in order to make this industry better. And that's all I have to say about it. If you need an intimacy director, you know you need an intimacy director. So hire an intimacy director mm -hmm. and see what we can bring forth in the art of your production. A perfect way to end. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad Joy introduced us and the three of us have formed a bond, which I feel very close to you, Anne, now, and I'm very grateful for that. That's our show. Thank you, Anne. You are our queen and an angel for what you do. This hour was a real education. And thank you, my dearest girl in the world, Joy, for co-hosting with me tonight. It was quite a show. I learned so much. We only have one more show in our second season. I'm so sad. Next Monday, May 24th, John Andrew and I will be talking with the talented Robin Herder from Moulin Rouge. Robin was nominated for a Tony for her performance as Nini in Moulin Rouge the Musical and how wonderful it is to be able to say Moulin Rouge will be open again on Broadway four months to the day from our interview on Friday, September 24th. I hope everyone out there is ordering their tickets for the fall when live theater returns. We hope you enjoyed our show. If you did, please take a moment and press the like button and subscribe. For news about upcoming guests, check our website, livewiththelortel.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We will see you next Monday at 7. Please stay healthy, wear a mask, get a vaccine, hire yourself an intimacy, choreographer, coordinator. You should know what they do now. They are priceless and I think everybody needs them in their show. So thank you for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you again, Anne. Enjoy. Good night. Stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Bryant Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.